Give me the Bible. Star of gladness gleaming, thy light shall guide me in the narrow way. Precept and promise, law and love combining, till night shall vanish in eternal day. When we sing, give me the Bible, we're not worshiping a book. We're worshiping the one who wrote this book. And we want to do it in the way that that book teaches us. A few years ago, Catherine and I were privileged to be a part of a mission team in Bangkok, Thailand. And what was interesting is as you would walk in to worship on Sunday mornings, there would usually be a a good crowd in there of about 100 or 150 people packed in this building. And, of course, you were outdoors and you were in kind of a a cabin-like structure that was sitting out over a lake. and, And you took your shoes off to walk around inside this dusty cabin, so your socks got dirty pretty quickly. But one of the things that we were taught was an absolute no-no. No, no matter how little room you have, when you sit down to worship, you don't put your Bible on the ground. That was just a rule of thumb that we needed to remember. And I thought that was interesting. I asked one of the church members about, about that, if she could speak English, and she understood where we were coming from a little bit. And I asked her, I said, well, now, why don't you allow the Bible to, to touch the ground? And she said, We are not worried about the book. We are not worried about the physical pages. We are worried about the Word of God. And I thought that was very interesting. They wanted to respect God's Word. And tonight, as we continue a study uh, into a a mindset and and a philosophy that many will be exposed to over the next few weeks and months, we need to think about how we can best hold up God's Word. Not a physical book with physical pages. We don't want to worship the book, we want to worship God, and we want to do it in the way that His book teaches us. And so for a few minutes this evening, I want us to think about the Bible, where it came from, how did we get it, and can we trust it? I've really enjoyed getting to talk with several of you as, as we've had this Sunday evening series. So there, there's just something about a Sunday night where we can come together, where we can study, where we can spend some time together that I think really lets me leave feeling encouraged. And as we think about this study that's taking place last Sunday and this Sunday, let me just reiterate. What we are doing as we come into worship is, is not trying to do a, a book review, and this is not about boycotting a book or, or a movie. We want to take advantage of a teachable moment. And there's one coming our way in a few weeks and months as people whom we might never have had a spiritual conversation with before will be talking about spiritual matters. And so we want to prepare ourselves. We want to arm ourselves. Uh, to be able to engage in those conversations. And wouldn't it be terrific if when we strike up a conversation with a friend at work about this subject, we can invite them to come to church with us, we can talk with them about it. And one of the issues that will be brought up is the nature of the Bible. And so as we think about our study, we've been focusing on some of the things that have been written in a bestseller that's going to be turned into a movie, uh, The Da Vinci Code. Here are a couple of reasons we talked about why it was successful. It's suspenseful, written in short chapters that leave you wanting more and leave you thinking, you know, I could probably get through these next few pages in just a few minutes. It won't take me that long to keep reading and you keep going. It also appeals to our desire to know something hidden or or secret or ancient. How many advertisements do you see that say things like, here's what the professionals don't want you to know. Here's what the government doesn't want you to know. This is some mysterious secret information. And so we, it kind of has that appeal to us as we think about it. It also appeals to an anti-religious sentiment that exists in our country. And it's very interesting to see it, 
that is it's played out. Here is the quote we looked at last week. Uh, the Da Vinci Code is a novel, therefore it's a work of fiction. While the book's characters and their actions are obviously not real, the artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals depicted in this novel all exist. So we have a fictional story that's taking place in the midst of what are said to be real events. And so when, when we read this in a book or when we watch it on, on a movie screen, I, I've had several that have come up to me and said, well, you know, I read it and I understood that it was fiction. And I think that's wonderful. I think, I think all of us here probably we could read it, understand that it's fiction, understand where he's coming from, but just imagine someone with no exposure to Christianity whatsoever. Just imagine someone sitting in a theater and hearing some, some of these things purported to be true and left with questions. And so that's, that's what we're going to focus on. That's what our focus is. And here is just a list, uh, a brief summary. We talked about this some last week. Uh, the cast of characters, uh, Dr. Robert Langdon, uh, symbologist, which sounds like a very noble profession, but it, uh, it does not exist. And so he is supposed to be able to interpret symbols and what they mean. Uh, Sophie Nouveau, you remember her word comes from the Greek word for wisdom. You've got wisdom and a, a new Eve. It's kind of a dawning of a new age for women and what they know. Sir Lee Teabing, uh, which is kind of an anagram of Lee and Benet, who wrote the book Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed in the news over the past week, uh, they have actually not only taken him to court, but it has come out that he has admitted, yes, I took several ideas that were in their book and, and put it in my novel. What's interesting is these two gentlemen uh, did not think they were writing a novel. They were convinced that what they said was true and that they had a, a guy who was a descendant of Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene, according to them. And, and so it's really, it's really fascinating to see what all subjects are going to be coming up. Here's just a brief sketch of what it says. Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. Uh, they had a daughter, Sarah, and that, uh, that, that at one point that family kind of migrated over to France and, and now their lineage was, was the kings, the Magovian kings in France. Jesus intended to hand his ministry over to Mary, not to Peter. Uh, the Holy Grail actually refers to Mary Magdalene since she would be uh, the, the bloodline of Christ. And then that the church has been covering up this secret for years. And here's that hidden part. But Leonardo da Vinci has hidden clues in his artwork uh, that, would, that would point us to these facts. And so that's where, that's where we're going to get some of these ideas. I meant to do this last week. Let me give you some good resources. Uh, if, if you want to, to think about this further, study this further, uh, you may be here this evening thinking, Boy, let's get this over with. I'm ready to move on to something else. But you may not. So if, if, you're, uh, if you're wanting to explore this a little bit further, uh, here is a book that uh, Ann Maddox has told me is available at Gospel Advocate, uh, Da Vinci Decoded. It's by Josh Harden. Uh, Josh is a member of the church in Savannah, Tennessee. Very intelligent guy who's done a lot of research. And uh, as I scanned through this book, I saw it was evident how many hours he'd put in. And so that would be an, a perspective from a member of the church. Also, there's a book I thought I might, I might point you to. Breaking the Da Vinci Code by uh, Daryl Bach. This is available widely in like Target and Walmart. He's a very conservative scholar. He goes into detail, but it's easy to read. So if you're interested, those are some good resources to choose from. We're going to be talking this evening about the formation of the biblical canon. How did we get the books in the New Testament? And here are some very good resources uh, that are available in our church library. Number one by Neil Lightfoot, How We Got the Bible. Probably the most widely read book on this subject uh, put out by our, our brotherhood, and so that would be an excellent resource. Also, You Can Trust Your Bible by Neil Pryor. He's a professor at Harding University, uh, and he has, has put in a kind of a condensed format that's very easy to read. Uh, it's uh, a book based on some lectures he gave, 
at a Christian student center to, to college students in the early 80s. And so there would be some very good information there. And as, as we think about arming ourselves with this knowledge, as, as we're going to be covering topics that we might not talk about very often, here would be some good resources so we can go into depth. So here's the primary question that is raised. And we'll just dive right in to the idea of how we got the New Testament. How did the books we have in the New Testament come to be? Let me read you just a few quotes that, uh, that one of the characters would say in this book. He would say, The Bible is a product of man, my dear, speaking to Sophie, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as an historical document, a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. And listen to this, history has never had a definitive version of this book. More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament. And yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. The Bible, as we know it today, was collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine the Great. And he would go on to say that it was compiled and edited by men who possessed a political agenda to promote the divinity of the man Jesus Christ and use his influence to solidify their own power base. And then one of the other characters would make this, just, just listen to this statement, almost everything our fathers taught us about Christ is false. And we are, are going to be seeing that, and people who've never heard anything about the Bible before will be left with questions. And so we need to remember, as we study the Bible, that there is some truth to this statement. The Bible did not fall from heaven as a complete document. Sometimes as we walk into bookstores and we see the different Bibles that you can buy, we forget that it's a collection of letters written by apostles, those close to apostles, that were inspired by God. And sometimes I think the idea that humans were involved, that God inspired humans to record the words of the Bible, can be a little bit scary. But I would submit to you that when you look throughout history, God has always used human beings to accomplish his purpose. Think about the, the patriarchal age when you have Abraham. God selects Abraham, calls him out to a land which he would promise him, and out of, out of Abraham's seed he would make a great many nations. Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. And they are, they are God's nation. They're God's chosen people. God is using human beings. And we've been studying in the mornings about the Sermon on the Plain as Jesus is really dealing with the 12 apostles that he has chosen for the first time that we read of in the book of Luke. He is choosing 12 men. We know that they were fallible. We know that they were human. We know they made mistakes. But he was choosing them to be emissaries of the gospel into, into all the world. And he's entrusted it in human beings. Even today, as members of the church, we're members of the Lord's body. And in what we do, we are his representation, his ambassadors, as Paul would say. We're his hands and feet on this earth. We want to carry out his mission. God could very easily have chosen to just give us the Bible in the form we have it now, but he used human beings. God has always used human beings. And as Christians, we want to be used by him more and more each day. And so as, as we think about the process of putting the Bible together, there are some things that we need to remember. Number one, when we think about the, uh, the autographs, the original manuscripts, we do not have those in existence today. Now what that means is, what we don't have is the letter that Paul sat down to write when he was going to write what we have, 1 Corinthians. We don't have that exact piece of paper with that exact handwriting of, uh, of, of Paul's message to the Corinthians. We don't have the exact piece of paper that the Gospels were written on. We don't have those original autographs. We have copious amounts of copies of those autographs, but we don't have the originals themselves. And it's important for us to realize that, and I think it's very interesting, as we look through, through church history, whenever you have something that's a, a relic 
or that's said to belong to someone, or this was supposed to be a part of Noah's Ark, or this was supposed to be the bones of one of the apostles. Whenever you have a relic that kind of pops up, there's a group of people that worships kind of that relic and sort of focuses on that. Loses sight of, of the God that Noah would have served on the ark or that the apostles would have served and, and focuses on that relic. I, I have a hunch that if we had the, the original autographed copies of the letters in the New Testament, I just wonder if that wouldn't be a problem for human beings today. To focus so much on that that we'd lose sight of the God that inspired those documents. It's important for us to realize that we have more copies of New Testament manuscripts than any other historical document. If you had to read the Iliad or the Odyssey by, by Homer in school uh, when you were taking a, a high school literature course, we have more copies of the New Testament than they would have of any of Homer's writings, any other writings. It's put to shame by the amount of copies we have. And certain copies of the text will, because they were written by humans, contain, I guess, an, an ancient version of typos and misspellings. And, and sometimes there would be manuscripts that are missing a certain line, but we've got so many of them that we can take them together, we can compare them, and discover what the original text said. Now, there are some challenges for those who've been working with manuscripts. There are some problems they run into, but for a vast majority of the cases, the various copies help us to determine exactly what it would have meant. And so, that's important for us to realize. I want to share with you a few questions that, that were the main sort of focus when they were putting together the biblical canon. A canon just is a, a rule or, or a, 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 measuring, a measuring read, something that is measured by. If it's something in the biblical canon, then that means that's the rule of our life. And so as we think about the canon, here were a few questions they asked. Uh, was it apostolic? In other words, was the author an apostle or someone who was closely related to an apostle, someone who traveled with an apostle? Does it have that authority to it? And it's very interesting. You'll remember that on the day of Pentecost, as the uh, apostles were were experiencing that, that gift of the Holy Spirit that came down into them just as, as tongues of fire, and they were able to do some miraculous things throughout the book of Acts, uh, we don't see them passing that power off to anyone else. You remember the record we have of Simon Magus coming to Peter and asking to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. You remember Peter's response. It was very clear that was not something for sale. That was not something they were going to pass off. You see, God had entrusted the apostles with some special powers and some, some special things. They weren't from the apostles, they were from God, but he'd given it to them as a sign that they were his ambassadors. The message from them was true, and the church understood that. And so they knew that if a book was going to be inspired, it would have to be either written by an apostle or someone closely connected to an apostle. And so that was the first question. Was it consistent with the Old Testament? Was number two. Is it consistent with the law of Moses? Uh, we know that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. So was it consistent with that? Had congregations accepted it as inspired by the Holy Spirit? In other words, you have a situation where communication is slower. There are groups of Christians meeting all over the countryside. And so to send a message from one place to another is not quite as quick as it would be today. And so they're trying to get word from, from different places. You remember when Paul would write letters to specific congregations... He would also ask for them to be read other places. And so as we think about the copies of the letters from the apostles that would have been floating around it, it did take some time for them to come together and to say these are the letters that have been inspired by the apostles. I want to give us that as a background going in to this study. And I want to remind us that God was at work in this process. And just as we see God inspiring the writers of the New Testament, the word inspiration meaning God breathed, God is at work in those words. And the words that we have in the New Testament are exactly the words that God wanted 
They reflect the styles of the individual authors. They reflect that person's talent, maybe that person's knowledge, but it's exactly what God wanted there. And I, I believe firmly that God worked the same way providentially as we see the canon being formed. He is working through people to give us exactly what we need in the New Testament. No documents written after uh, AD 120 were considered for inclusion. And if you think about that, it makes sense because it would have to have that ring of apostolic authority and if you write after AD 120, chances are you're not an apostle or one closely connected with an apostle. Uh, there, and so as we think about that, there were other documents that claimed to be Gospels. You may have heard this story that, uh, that was in one of those Gospels claiming to be a, an inspired document about Jesus as a boy making a, a bird out of clay and then bringing it to life to impress his friends. Uh, you know, stories like this that just don't match up with what we have in the New Testament. And so there were other writings that existed. A formation of the canon, as we know it, began in about the mid-2nd century. Now, if you remember, we talked last week about Constantine, and he lived in the 4th century, and they're, they're saying that he's the guy who put all this together. Well, in the middle of the 2nd century, they began forming the canon. They began putting together the inspired books. And it's interesting that uh, the Muratorian canon, which was written right about that time, refers to Luke as the third of the Gospels and John as the fourth of the Gospels. And it's uh, very clear that it names only four books as containing the Gospels. And so from everything we can see, by the time it got around to the mid-second century, there were four Gospels that told about the life of Christ. Now that was centuries before Constantine would come on the scene. Uh, they were agreed upon before he was even born. And so as we think about the Gospels that we read about, those were, and, and I think a chronological relationship is so important, these were way before all these decisions get made down the line. Uh, it's interesting, Irenaeus, who was a church father, he lived in the second century, and he wrote, So firm is the ground upon which these Gospels rest that the very heretics themselves bear witness to them. And starting from these documents, each one of them endeavors to establish his own peculiar doctrine. In other words, the very people who want to teach something false, they have to begin with the four Gospels because the four Gospels have been decided upon. Now, how they take their interpretation might vary, but they've got to begin in that same place. And so we can know that the Gospels were decided on by the mid-2nd century. And here's another thing that's important for us to remember as we go through this. The fact that 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, it's just it's not true. Other writings do claim to be Gospels, but this is important. If we added up every piece of writing that claimed to be about Jesus' life, we would get, outside of the four inspired Gospels, we would get about 24, and many of these would just be fragments of something that Jesus said somewhere that someone wrote down and wanted to pass around as a quote from Jesus, or there would be fragments about a story that might have happened to someone that they were passing around. So the idea that there were 80 other Gospels to choose from out here, and we somehow picked four, it's just wrong. As we think about the 24 writings that do exist, not all of them would even claim to be official Gospels. And so it's important to understand that. Remember this passage from Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished. As Luke is writing, he grants at the very beginning that there are many who are writing about this. You can imagine, if you witnessed something that Jesus Christ did, a miracle that he performed, or if you saw his death on the cross and the events that occurred afterward, you'd probably be writing a friend a letter about that. You might even be trying to record something down for your memory. So there were many people that were writing about it, but who were the ones inspired by God? And so as, that's the question that we want to think about. And so they were all accepted as inspired by the early church, and they all come from apostles or those closely associated with the apostles. So that's kind of a preliminary answer. We're going to get in a little more detail 
as we look at this question. Uh, at one section of the book, T being located, a huge book, pulled it toward him across the table. This leather-bound edition was poster-sized like a huge atlas, and the cover read, The Gnostic Gospels. And these are later described as the earliest Christian documents in the book, the Gnostic Gospels. Uh, here's something that will help us understand this a little bit. The term Gnostic, all it comes from is the Greek word for knowledge. So when you think about the Gnostic Gospels, it's a group of people that claim to have a special knowledge about Jesus Christ. Uh, once again, everyone wants to have this kind of special, unknown knowledge. And so you have people that come up and say, I've been given this special knowledge. And it's really interesting, as we studied through an auditorium class not too long ago, the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we see the beginnings of Gnosticism, even that John is dealing with, people who have a special knowledge. And here's what would happen. Their special knowledge was that uh, Jesus, who was born and was the son of Joseph and, and grew up in a carpenter's family, was just a man. But when his ministry came, Christ, who was a spiritual being, came upon him, and then on the cross, Christ, the spiritual being, left, and then you have Jesus, the man. Now, if that sounds a little odd to you, it's because uh, they had a real big separation between the spiritual and the physical. In other words, spiritual was good, the physical was bad. So the idea that God would come and be made human, uh, not that any of us can fully comprehend that, but we know it to be true, but the idea that God would come and be human would just be repugnant to them. I, they couldn't believe that, that God would become flesh, because to them, flesh was evil. And so I just want us to understand, that's the mindset. And what's interesting is in the Gnostic Gospels, we see a lot of that reflected. Uh, and so the, the idea of the Word being made flesh in that beautiful passage in John chapter 1 would not have gone well with what they believed. Uh, in his writings, John addresses this. Look at what John makes the test for whether something is inspired in 1 John chapter 4. Beginning verse 2, he says, Every spirit that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, uh, that should be every spirit that says Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. As John was writing his readers, he wanted to make sure that if someone came and said that, that Jesus did not come in the flesh, that Jesus Christ was not incarnated into human flesh, if they say that, that's not from God, because that's not what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches that, as John would say in chapter 1, he is the Word made flesh, that he dwelt among us, that he lived among us. And that was very important. And so we have kind of the beginnings of that. It's interesting, in the book, they'll say the Gnostic gospels included the Dead Sea Scrolls, I don't know if any of you were able to visit the Dead Sea Scrolls when they came to Murfreesboro a couple of years ago, but what's interesting about that is when they discovered these Dead Sea Scrolls, which were a, a wonderful find for some of our Old Testament books, there weren't any New Testament books contained in those Dead Sea Scrolls. So they could not contain the, the Gospels. They could not be a part of that. They had Old Testament. In fact, every book but Esther had at least fragments in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so that was a powerful discovery, but it was for the Old Testament. And so that's important to remember. Uh, when you hear about the secret Gospels, uh, these are referring to a discovery made at, at Nag Hammadi, in the Nag Hammadi Library. And so these documents were written in the 4th century. Now keep in mind our time frame here. We're thinking about people who were either one of the apostles or close to the apostles. And they would have lived among the 1st century church. In fact, once you got past A.D. 120, those books written then weren't even considered in the Gospels. And then you have books written all the way over here in the 4th century that are claiming to be the earliest Christian documents. That's just something, I think, to help us wrap our minds around this as we think about it. Here are some of these. I thought this would be interesting for us. Here are some of the writings that were discovered at the Nag Hammadi Library from the uh, Gospel of Philip, 
Winter is the world, summer the other realm. It is wrong to pray in winter. Uh, and that, that's just kind of an interesting, we have that sort of dualistic, the flesh is good, uh, a spirit is good, flesh is bad, and then apparently summer is, is good, it's the other realm, and winter is bad. Uh, here's one that sort of reflects what they thought about Jesus from the Acts of John. They said, I will tell you another glory, brothers, and this is supposed to be the words of John as they wrote it. Sometimes I meant to touch him, and I encountered a material, solid body. But at other times, again, when I felt him, his substance was immaterial and incorporeal, as if it did not exist at all. And so you have that mindset. They're, they're saying, hey, there were some times it seemed like it was a physical body, sometimes it was a purely spiritual body and wasn't dwelt in the flesh. Kind of trying to slide in that idea about being, being separated. I think of, of Thomas coming and wanting to feel the wound at his side, wanting, wanting to see that. And so we, we think about this sort of concept of separating the physical and the spiritual. The only document that even comes close to being in the right time period is in the second century, and it's the Gospel of Thomas. It's not even mentioned in the book. It's the only one that could come close time-wise. It's really interesting, and I, I know that, uh, that uh, as I keep saying that this is really interesting, uh, uh, it might not be interesting to everyone, but I think it's important to remember. Uh, I don't want to feel as if we're just throwing out a lot of information, but uh, there's a man in the second century named Marcion, and he was the first guy that came along, and he said that the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. In other words, he first started this separation. We still struggle with that today. We struggle with the idea that all God was concerned about in the Old Testament was law and justice and wrath, and all he's concerned about in the New Testament is love. We've, we still kind of deal with that, and that's all the way back in the second century when he promoted this idea. And so Marcion got together, and he decided he was going to decide which, which books were belonged in the canon. Uh, so he left out several of the books we have in the New Testament, edited others, um, edited parts out of others he didn't think were true to the original. And so it's interesting that the Gospel of Thomas existed at this time. You have a guy who's really wanting to make his case. He's deciding this book belongs in the New Testament, this one does. Oh, let's cut this one, this part out of this one. And he doesn't even consider a, a book which would have really been in line with what he was teaching. It just kind of reminds us that there was a, a, a stable of books that although some argued Marcion would try to leave some out that didn't quite go with what he thought, there was a stable there that was considered inspired. And even those that were written close to that time uh, were seen as not belonging in that. No Gnostic gospel was ever taken seriously as a potential biblical writing. And now I know it doesn't matter what, what man says about something. It matters what God says. But they were going back to those three tests we talked about. And God was at work. He was guiding this process. And none of these were taken seriously. So there are a couple of questions. And then here is the one I'd like for us to close with tonight. I believe this is the most serious question we are going to face. Is Christianity just a mixture of other religions? About Christianity, Teabing says, nothing in Christianity is original. Even the Christians' weekly holy day was stolen from the pagans. Christianity honored the Sabbath day, but Constantine shifted it to coincide with the pagans' veneration day of the sun. And so here we have essentially a statement that all we're doing as Christians is participating in a mixture of religions that someone came up with. And Langdon, the character, would say these words, every faith in the world is based on fabrications. That is the definition of faith, acceptance of that which we imagine to be true, that which we cannot prove. There's quite a different definition of faith we're going to get to in just a minute. But think about the, the, the powerful uh, Conclusion, if, if this is to be true, if we're going to believe this, think about where that leaves us. Think about where that leaves people who are going to be exposed to that. 
well, Christianity is just a collection of religions, and since any one of the collections is just as good as any others, I guess it doesn't really matter. As we're dealing with the world that people are calling a postmodern world, we're dealing with all of these ideas that it's not just uh, there's only one road, it's that every road is fine, no matter where it leads, whatever works for you. And so as we think about this, uh, this concept is really going to resonate. Here are a few scriptures that, uh, that can help us understand uh, exactly where the day of the Lord, where the first day of the week came from. In the seventh verse of Acts chapter 20, Christians are very clearly meeting on the first day of the week. They're doing so to break bread. When Paul would talk to the Corinthians about the collection he was taking, when did he want them to set aside that money? On the first day of the week. And so they're meeting together on the first day of the week. Uh, and then we have the, a reference to the Lord's Day. In Revelation 1.10, John describes the Lord's Day, the day of the Lord. And so we have some very clear scriptures that existed. Remember, scriptures, God inspires them. They're written over here in the first century. Constantine comes along over here in the fourth century. These existed centuries before he did. And we see that it was according to the will of God that Christians were worshiping on Sunday. It was not a decision that was made later on down the line. We see it in the New Testament. And so it's important to remember that. There are many Christian writings. We could go through several quotes that reflect this practice. Christians came together on the first day of the week. Existed before Constantine comes on the scene. And remember, they were, all four of the Gospels were written before any of these other works that people might try to slide in. Uh, I also want to, uh, to make this point as, as we think about these other religions he mentions. He talks about the, the god, lowercase g, Mithras, the birth of Krishna, etc. A lot of these are taken from an 1875 book named The World's 16 Crucified Saviors by Cursed Graves. And what happens is this book comes out, it seemed to be very scholarly, and it made sort of these claims that this was just a, we were just mixing up all the religions together uh, to have Christianity, but it makes some pretty bogus claims and it has zero documentation. What that means is let's say you're turning in a paper. Let's say that uh, you, of course, as I'm sure many of us, uh, many of our students have done all during spring break, uh, rather than, than go outside or play or stay out late going to see movies. They're, they're focusing on this research paper they're going to write. They turn in this research paper. They've worked on for weeks and weeks. They turn it in, and they don't have a single footnote or a single reference or a single source. Now, we don't have to be English teachers or any other teacher, for that matter, to know what sort of grade that paper would get. If, you're, if you don't have any source, if you're not showing where you're getting any of this, then we're not going to be able to, to give this a decent grade. Be lucky if the teacher even read it. As we think about this book that was written so many years ago, it had zero documentation. And so there's, there's absolutely no evidence behind the claims that he's making. When we understand the Bible, we know the author's love. And as we think about the Bible, where it came from, I hope that we can leave here encouraged by the fact that, that God's given us a word that will never fade away. I'd like with you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. I want us to leave with this verse in mind. As we think about the Word of God, listen to what he says in verse 8 of Isaiah 40. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. And when we look back and when we see the way God used humans to put together the New Testament, that's not something that should frighten us. We, we shouldn't be scared of that. The truth has nothing to fear from investigation. And as we think about all the questions that are going to come up, there are some serious claims that we've talked about last week and tonight. Some serious claims that challenge the core of who we are as Christian people. But I don't believe that that should discourage us. Because we serve a God who gave us 
the guide to know truth. And that truth has nothing to fear from other questions or other investigations. And as you get in conversations with your friend uh, at work or your friends at school, we have nothing to fear from looking at, at these facts, whether they be historical or whether they be textual in the Bible, because we serve the author of this book and we know his love for us. I was really excited about a conversation I had last week where a man told me there was a person at work he wanted to talk with about this, and he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. We're going to sit down, we're going to look at some notes, and then we're going to look at the Bible, and we're going to read through this book in light of the Bible and see where we come out. I think that's a tremendous idea. Because we have the word that will not fade or wither like grass. We have the word that lasts forever. And so as we think about these questions about where the New Testament came from, about these quote, Gnostic Gospels, even about people saying Christianity is just a mixture of other religions. It's important for us to realize that the God who created this world and everything in it gave us a word that can guide every day of our lives. Give me the Bible. And if you're here this evening and you haven't taken the Bible, if you haven't taken God's word and implemented that plan uh, in your life, the power is not, as the Thai Christian said, in, in a physical book. The power is in the God who inspired the book and gave that to us. That's the God we want to serve. That's the God you can begin serving tonight as we think about following His Word, submitting to His will, putting Him on in baptism and beginning that new life, that new faithful walk with Him. If you haven't done that, won't you do it tonight? This may not be the only opportunity you have, but I cannot think of a better time when you have a room full of people who would love nothing more than to be your brothers and sisters in Christ. If there's any way we can help you, please come forward as we stand and sing together. Oh,